Hi guys, welcome to the Original Judo Podcast. I'm James Austin and I am delighted to be joined today by um, an associate professor of sport and exercise psychology, um, all the way from the University of Utah. Uh, it's Les Podlog. Les, how are you doing? Yeah, great. Uh, th thanks for having me on the podcast, James. It's great to be with you. Oh, mate, absolutely delighted to have you on here. Um, and thanks for kind of squeezing me into your, your, your busy day. How's, how's coronavirus treating you? How's, how are you working at the moment? Yeah, so I'm, as you mentioned, I'm in Utah, and, and it's certainly been interesting in the U.S. I mean, as you know, probably heard uh, the cases across the U.S. in many states are rising, uh, but I suppose like most people, you know, trying to work through the circumstances as, as best as possible and, uh, uh, you know, trying to, for me, I, I like to get out and hike in the mountains, and, and that's... Uh, my way of uh, coping and getting out into the great outdoors and and thankfully here in salt lake we're uh, fortunate to have um, some wonderful natural surroundings with lots of hiking and uh, biking and so you know in, in general doing fine and i guess uh, trying to manage multiple demands with uh, balancing kids doing their homeschooling and and keeping on top of work and that kind of thing but in general doing just fine thanks how about yourself ah ticking over keeping busy and um keeping well which are the main things are so all good all good yeah. um could you kind of give us a little bit of your kind of background in sport and then what you what you do now yeah sure so many years ago i uh you know i grew up in canada and i suppose as a youngster most canadians play ice hockey being the national sport uh, I think I think they take away your passport if at some point you don't play, <laughs> play the game but uh, I grew up in in uh, originally I was from Montreal and then grew up in Calgary in the western part of Canada and, and as a youngster uh, we had a ice hockey rink that was across the street from my house and my brother and I would play all day in the winter and and uh, I guess I was 12 or 13 and it was my brother that got into it first I don't know who introduced him to the sport of wrestling but he got hooked into it and and then I remember coming out to a practice and, and I think I was kind of disgruntled because I didn't get chosen for the top ice hockey team and and I thought oh this is political <laughs> you know and, and so when I started wrestling I, I guess I really liked the individual nature and, and the fact that it was very physical and and I quickly learned also a very very technical sport and so when I was yeah as I say about 13 I started focusing in on wrestling and, and it really became a primary uh, interest during my junior high and high school and then um, I was fortunate at the in my final year of high school in grade 12 I got offered a scholarship to go to Simon Fraser University, which was located, in, which is located in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And at the time, and, and even still today, they have one of the top wrestling programs in Canada. And, and when I, you know, just prior to my arrival, they had had, you know, a number of world medalists and, and Olympians. And, and so for me, oh, it was... Wow really exciting, I guess, to, you know, I, I remember feeling simultaneously excited, but also kind of apprehensive about whether I'd be able to train and compete with the best, but also really excited about that prospect. And um, so, you know, I guess when I was in high school and, and I was wrestling, I was really fortunate that, that I didn't have any injuries. And, you know, really, I Kind of had the mindset that it was only kind of weak athletes so to speak that that got injured but but that changed unfortunately by the time i got to university and and uh, in my first year i believe it was at the third competition i tore my anterior cruciate ligament and you know for me that was pretty devastating i had just turned 18 and and the prospect of having um 
six to nine month rehabilitation and the rest of my season ended before it even really got started was was difficult and and I remember kind of uh, my coach who was kind enough to let me stay at his house after I had my my knee operation I remember sitting there one day and and you know I had tears kind of coming down my face and and you know I, I couldn't I was in a bit of disbelief that I was in that circumstance but I also kind of remember thinking that I wasn't going to let this get in the way of accomplishing the things that I wanted to uh, but yeah. unfortunately, I guess over the course of the next six years, I, I couldn't really stay healthy. So I subsequently had two more ACL uh, reconstructions on my left leg and I dislocated my shoulder. And, um, you know, I so I had a, a laundry list of injuries and, um, <laughs> and and it was frustrating. I mean, I. I had some measure of success, I guess. I, uh, in my second year, I won the Canadian Junior National Championships and got uh, eighth place at the World Junior Championships, which were held in Tehran, in Iran that year. And um, oh, wow. uh, so, you know, I, I m managed to get some competitions in, but it was always kind of rushing to get back and, and compete after a long rehabilitation and and um you know i i guess uh those experiences really sort of led to my interest in studying and, and understanding you know was i alone in this or or what kinds of experiences were other athletes having with injury and and were there ways to maybe address the mental side of things um you know i i found it was often not so much just the physical elements of injury but really the psychological challenges that that were really challenging and and um you know i i guess maybe we'll talk more about that but uh, that that's kind of my sporting background and that as i say led me to to pursue further study and and um so i completed a master's and a doctorate degree i studied in perth at the university of western australia and and then um and, and for my research, I focused on the psychological challenges of injury and, and some strategies or ways to try and help athletes deal with those, those mental challenges. And for the better part of the past 15 or so years, I've, I've been fortunate to uh, teach and work in a number of universities where I've researched and, and taught in the area of sports psychology and, and also um, on the psychology of injury. So that, that's a bit of a long answer. But <laughs> <laughs> no, awesome. I like, I like that you threw in there that um, you ended up in uh, studying in Perth. How, how did you get from Canada to Perth? Why, why Perth? Yeah, so I, you know, Vancouver is a wonderful city. It has, uh, again, it's notorious for being one of the best cities in the world. There's mountains and and the Pacific Ocean, and it's a wonderful, multicultural, vibrant city, but it also rains a lot, and Simon <laughs> Fraser is, is actually in a, a suburb called Burnaby, and, and the campus sits on top of a small mountain, and we get a lot of rain, and I remember, I think, one year, uh, I, I read somewhere that Simon Fraser had one of the highest suicide rates of any university in Canada, so despite the fact that it provides a wonderful educational uh, experience it, it can also be very sort of dark and gloomy because it gets quite foggy and and I think I just always had the uh, for some reason Australia always held a certain appeal for me and and so uh, at the time I had finished a master's degree and I was selling frozen food door to door out of the back of a van and my, my dad joked with me, he said, oh, you're probably one of the more ed well-educated door-to-door food sales people. <laughs> and, you know, at the start, I kind of liked doing it because I had a lot of autonomy and flexibility. But as with many sales jobs, it has its shortcomings. And so by the end of, uh, you know, after doing that for a year, I, I really sort of felt a strong urge to go back to school and and uh, somewhere in that year, I had applied to do my PhD. 
and some friends from Calgary who um, said, well, if you're interested in going to Australia and you're interested in sports psychology, then you should reach out to a fellow named Bob Eklund. And he was a professor in sports psychology at the University of Western Australia in Perth. And so I reached out to him and, and uh, you know, I was pretty fortunate to be able to study under him. He was, um, yeah, definitely one of the <clears throat> leading researchers and, and scholars and, and remains so uh, in, in the area of sports psychology. So I was really lucky to get to study underneath, uh, uh, to study with Bob in Perth. Uh, so, yeah. Amazing. Um, so we, we are going to talk about kind of coping with injury and return from injury uh, today. Um, so I know, I know we chatted before and I've obviously had a look at your site. I have shared a similar uh, list of injuries with you. Not quite so many knee surgeries for my ACL, but similar, similar list of injuries. Um, when, when they first happened, like how do you... And with hindsight, do you think you handled being injured well? Or do you think you, or now that you've got a much better understanding, do you think you could have done things differently? Yeah, yeah, I, that's a great question. I mean, I think <clears throat> definitely the short answer is in retrospect, there are things that I could have done uh, differently and for sure could have optimized my recoveries in different ways that I wasn't necessarily at the time. And I think particularly like a lot of young athletes, you know, I alluded to the fact that I was really intent on coming back stronger and better. And, and, and on the one hand, that motivation and that drive to, you know, be the best competitor I, I could be was helpful. But on the other hand, it also probably led me to maybe rush trying to come back at times. And, and you know, I know uh, there were times where I, I remember kind of feeling like uh, my coaches, you know, they, they wanted me to get more match experience, which I, I needed, or, you know, like I was the kind of competitor that got confidence just from competing. And I unfortunately didn't have the benefit of that. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I often probably rushed my return sometimes before I was physically healed. And, and, you know, I remember, I think it was after my second uh, anterior cruciate ligament injury where I went off campus to a different physiotherapist. And, and this guy was, he, he was really good. Like he was kind of like a coach and he did a lot of functional assessments. And, and I remember that he pointed out that I just had weaknesses in different areas that were making me more vulnerable or prone to getting hurt again. And so I think, okay. you know, that um, there were times where physically I just wasn't probably as, as prepared as I needed to be. And, and that definitely also had an impact on, on my self-belief or, or my confidence. And, and you know, I, I know there were times where I was really tight or apprehensive when I was competing after I came back. And, and I just felt like, you know, I couldn't just let out sort of my capabilities and, and perform as I wanted to. Um, and at times maybe I was focusing on the injury itself, but also at times just sort of getting too caught up in, in uh, thinking about how I was performing while I was actually performing rather than just, you know, letting the skills come out automatically. Um, so, you know, I think there were definitely things physically that I could have done psychologically you know, the, as I've learned over the years, there's a lot of different tools, I guess, whether it's things like uh, imagery or strategies for managing frustrations uh, related to negative emotions and thoughts that are pretty common for injured athletes, uh, or just making sure that I was getting the right kind of support uh, from people in terms of, you know, the social support uh, that maybe I could have done differently. Uh, or even from a nutritional standpoint, you know, um, today recovery is very much, depending on the circumstance of the athlete, th there's often a group of individuals that lend their expertise to the recovery of, of injured performers. And, you know, things like sleep or nutrition can have a big impact on one's healing and, and recovery. And, and so, 
you know, having discussions with a nutritionist, for instance, probably could have been or, or would have been helpful in making sure that I was eating the right things to help my body heal. And so I think to answer your question for sure, in, in retrospect, there are a lot of things that I could have done differently and, and maybe just uh, taken more time, uh, not rushed back, I think. Uh, maybe listen to my body, I suppose, would definitely be one thing that, that I would do better that, that I wasn't necessarily doing at a younger age. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, my style of, inter uh, of interviewing is um, basically to go with what's on the top of my head. So yeah, I yeah, feel you've touched on, on <laughs> touched on loads of stuff there that I hope we'll come back to. Um, but yeah, for, kind of first off, like, what are some of those, you've, you've talked a bit about some of the kind of mental challenges that you, or psychological challenges that you faced in coming back. Yeah. Obviously, the, the physical barriers to coming back are going to differ between the athlete and the particular injury. But again, from your experience now, what, what kind of like other challenges can people expect from those severe or long-term injuries like yeah. beyond just the physical? Right. Yeah. So that, that's a great question. And, and I guess over the years through the research that I've done with my graduate students and colleagues and, and the research that I've read, there's really three main categories of psychological challenge or concern. And, and one of those relates to athlete's sense of competence. So by competence, I mean their sense of ability or proficiency. Um, you know, we all, especially in achievement settings, it's really important for athletes to be good, right? They spend countless hours trying to perfect their skills. And not surprisingly, when they're injured, that sense of competence or capability, ability can be very much thrown into question. And, and certainly if it's a, an acute injury where, you know, maybe you're going from being able to execute uh, sport-specific skills, really challenging skills, to execute them at a high level, expertly, proficiently, and then all of a sudden that's taken away. And, and you know maybe now you can't even go to the bathroom by yourself or you're struggling to bend your knee because it's all swollen. And so this sense that you're no longer competent or capable uh, is, is for many athletes prominent and, and something that's front and center in their mind as they progress through the re rehabilitation or the recovery. Uh, so that's kind of one concern. And, and, you know, there's a lot of questions related to that sense of confidence. Like, will I be as good as I once was? Will I be able to come back and have my physical skills? Will I be as physically fit as I once was? Um, will I be able to, um, you know, um, perform like I once did or, or reach my aspirations and goals? And all of those uncertainties or questions, those are all really competence-based or competence in, in, uh, in their nature, I guess, or essence. Uh, so that's, I guess, kind of one category of concern. A second relates to this idea of autonomy. And people often think of autonomy in terms of being independent, but that's not necessarily what the term implies uh, in, in this case. It's really about feeling a sense of control. And, and I guess I kind of alluded to this in, in my comment a second ago. For many athletes, maybe they're used to having a sense of control over their body and what it can do, right? Or they're used to having a sense of control over their training. And, you know, and they, they understand that if they do certain things and they work on certain skills, that'll increase their likelihood of success. Um, and, you know, so the idea that if I do X, Y, and Z, it will result in positive outcomes. And they're used to having that mindset, right? That they can shape or influence <clears throat> or bring about what they aspire to achieve through their hard work, effort, and diligence. Well, when they get injured, again, all of that can be jeopardized and thrown into question, right? You might not feel like you have any sense of control over your body. Uh, maybe your routine is totally now out of your control. It's not sort of that usual training regimen that you have. 
Uh, maybe you don't feel like you have a sense of control over the recovery process and what's involved, or, or you're just uncertain. And, you know, for most of us, regardless of injury, uncertainty can be a, an aversive state, right? We don't always tend to thrive when, when the circumstance is completely open-ended, unstructured or uncertain. So that second category relates to that idea of autonomy. And that's a prominent issue for many athletes. And then the third is this idea of what's called relatedness or a sense of connection. And, you know, having been, of course, an athlete at the highest level in your sport, James, I mean, you probably well know that, um, you know, being a judo player for many athletes isn't just something they do, but an important part of how they define themselves and, and who they are, right? And so for many athletes, sport isn't just what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's, it defines them as individuals. And, uh, you know, once you are no longer doing your sport, again, maybe if that's taken abruptly, then for many athletes, they start to question who they are or their sense of self-worth, right? Well, if I'm not an athlete, then what is my purpose? What is my value? So they, they kind of become disconnected or alienated from themselves and their identities as athletes, but also they become disconnected or they lose that relatedness from relevant others like coaches or you know their training partners they're no longer in that competitive environment or they're no longer going out and competing that again contributes to their sense of value and worth and the sense that maybe they're contributing to the team if they're a team sport athlete so you know those are i i guess i like referring to those three constructs because in reality there's a whole host of psychological challenges that an athlete could face but that's sort of, a, I find a nice kind of framework or way to encapsulate these variety or, you know, the, the, the multitude, I guess, of different concerns that athletes have. Do you think, again, this is just coming from that. Do you think um, potentially there's a lot of athletes facing those challenges at the moment because of, you know, the, this really unusual kind of situation related to coronavirus that we're, we're in. So can you say that again? Are the concerns similar because of the COVID situation or that? Yeah, just yeah. so you, the, the way you described it, it immediately made me think, oh, actually, I wonder if the athletes are, are facing those same kind of challenges or same, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Going through their minds. So, I, yeah, again, I, I think there probably are some parallels between an injury circumstance and, and what an athlete may be going through, you know, with COVID. Like, obviously, for, you know, many athletes, it's totally upended their schedules, right? Or, you know, um, if you're a collegiate athlete, for example, in the United States and you're in your final senior year and you know, and now all of these sports have been postponed and then, you know, maybe you have the sense that your career is ending not on your own terms, but it's just kind of taken from you. Or, you know, maybe you're um, a younger athlete and, and um, you know, you feel like you still, you know, want to make training gains, but the pool is closed, you know, and, and has yeah. been for, for months. And, and so, um, you know, you don't know how that's going to affect your skills or, or your capabilities, or um, you have this sense of indeterminacy, right? Like none of us really know how this will all play itself out, right? Like, well, at some point, will it be safe to resume competitive activities or, you know, socializing in, in large groups, right? And like, um, I guess with athletes, you know, more and more top athletes are coming out in, in different sports where they have gotten COVID or, or if I get COVID, what impact will that actually have? Like we still are learning a lot about the virus. And so people don't necessarily know, well, will that, you know, have implications for my lung capacity or, you know, there's all these sort of physical things. And so I, I agree that I think there are lots of parallels I, the second thing I would say is there is 
emerging research, some of it coming from the NCAA that has shown that uh, um, collegiate athletes in the United States have, um, you know, seem to have elevated levels of anxiety and depression following COVID as compared to before. So, oh wow, um, there is some research uh, coming out that's suggesting, and and I guess this is not entirely surprising that, you know, for these athletes that it is taking this whole circumstance is taking a psychological toll on their well-being and, and affecting their mental health. Yeah. Okay. Um, so talked about the challenges. Are there factors that are uh, perhaps more important in better coping or, or better recovery and re return to competition or return to training? Yeah. Yeah, the short answer is there are. And, you know, the, the path or that the trajectory, I guess, that an individual takes in their recovery, again, may relate to, uh, I'll offer a few kind of broad categories here. The, the first is individual factors or factors that are within the athlete themselves. And, and there may be a number of things. So there's a lot of uh, uh, quite a bit of research showing that when you adhere or you comply with the prescribed rehabilitation program, you know, assuming that you see a qualified practitioner who understands the science and evidence of how to put together a good quality rehabilitation program for a particular injury, that if you engage in that program, that you're more likely to have better clinical or functional outcomes, whether it's, you know, reductions in pain or greater mobility or, you know, whatever might be relevant to a specific injury. But again, that, that um, implies that the program itself is actually efficacious or that it works. And so, of course, it's important for injured athletes to make sure that they are getting good and effective uh, advice. And, and, you know, I, I think by and large, uh, in many Western countries, the, the science of rehabilitation programs is improving where, you know, there is a pretty good understanding of what kinds of exercises one should do, how much, um, how intense, you know, how regular one should do those exercises. But of course, you know, these rehabilitation programs, it's a bit of a mix of art and science. So, Assuming again that the athlete has a program that is effective, then there's evidence to suggest that um, being consistent, engaging with that program, not overdoing it, but not underdoing it, finding that right balance can be helpful. Well, that's an individual thing. Um, there are also a lot of psychological things. So that, that adherence is more behavioral in nature. In other words, what is the athlete doing in terms of their actions. You know, rehabilitation can be boring. And so maybe, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to hold yourself back when you're, you know, really keen to get back in there. Well, if the practitioner says, you know, I don't want you doing twice as many because that's actually gonna delay your recovery because, you know, you're, you're gonna strain muscles that still need to heal, for instance. So adherence implies that you don't do too much, but you also, you know, engage in, in sort of the right amount. That's a behavioral thing. But there are also kind of psychological things. And one of them I mentioned earlier that uh, this idea of like uh, what researchers call your locus of control. So that refers to this idea that um, some people have this belief that or they have what's called an internal locus of control. They believe that if they, that they essentially control their fate, that if I do certain things, that if I work hard, that if I practice, that if I work with my, this top coach or this excellent rehab practitioner, that I can assert influence, I can control my recovery outcome. That's an internal locus of control. On the other hand, some people have what's referred to as an external locus of control. They believe 
that it's not so, that what happens to them in rehabilitation in life or in achievement settings in school, whatever it might be, is less a product of their own personal effort um, or behaviors and more a product of factors in the environment or what other people, right? Like, well, <coughs> am I lucky enough to be on a team that has a good rehabilitation environment where there's equipment that I can use? Or um, do I have access to someone who actually knows what they're talking about and who can guide me through an effective program, right? They, they believe that their recovery has more to do with external factors rather than factors that they can assert control of or that are internal to themselves. Um, so there's some evidence to suggest that people who have more of an internal locus of control tend to have better rehabilitation outcomes. Um, you know, there's a whole host of things, self-confidence, athletes who are higher in, in the belief in that they can deal with the challenges. And there's lots of physical, psychological challenges, whether it's tedium or I'm losing motivation in a long recovery, right? Do I believe that I can work through that? Or do I believe that I can, you know, address all those what ifs and doubts that I mentioned a few minutes ago, right? Yeah, I think, you know, even though I've had this nine months off, and it's a long time, I still think there's lots of things that I can do that will help me get better. I can address different areas of my body that are weak. I can, um, you know, work on my nutrition, as I alluded to, I can work on strategy and tactics, I can analyze game film. Um, you know, I can spend some time and, and, and just learn how to breathe better or, you know, learn some relaxation skills that are going to help me when I come back. Uh, I can learn how to manage pain and that's going to help me. So, you know, um, if, if one has the confidence and the self-belief that they can use the time to acquire different skills, and I, there's evidence to suggest that athletes who do that have more effective recoveries, if they believe that they can overcome these challenges, that that can be uh, very important in terms of the outcome of their recovery. Um, you know, so there's a lot of sort of factors within the individual and, and there's others like fear of re-injury, right? If they're really worried or apprehensive mm -hmm. about getting re-injured, which is normal, then they're more likely to uh, sustain a re-injury to not, well, to, first of all, to not actually return. That's been shown to be a psychological factor that predicts non-return. If they do return and they have really elevated fears of re-injury, they're more susceptible to getting hurt, actually re-injured. And there's evidence to show that they're less likely to perform well if they have elevated fears of re-injury. So there's a lot of factors within the individual there's factors, this kind of a second category that affects the, the effectiveness or course of recovery is uh, the environment. And certainly social support is one key factor. So if athletes have access to the, you know, right kinds of help, if they have maybe someone who just can listen to them vent, maybe that's what they need. Um, you know, so you know, or maybe there are physical factors in the environment, as I say, like, do they have access to the equipment? You know, at the university I work at, it's pretty amazing what they have these water, you know, like um, non-weight bearing treadmills where athletes who have stress fractures can run, stuff like they would use in the military, or, you know, they have all kinds of aqua uh, equipment that they can use to reduce um, load on injured limbs. So, you know, that not everyone has access to that, but that can certainly make a difference, right? Or, you know, again, can you go down to a rehab environment where you have world-class expertise and facilities? Those are things that might not be entirely under the athlete's control, but that do certainly affect the recovery. And then the third thing is uh, there's evidence to highlight the role of demographic factors. Uh, younger athletes tend to have more difficulties coping, um, you know, and I guess that's in general in life, if you have less sort of experience dealing with difficult circumstances, then you don't always have the tools or strategies to cope with maybe something that's really difficult. Um, 
gender has been found to influence recovery. And, and there isn't a lot of research in that area, but there's at least one or two studies that I, I can think of where uh, they found that uh, female athletes had more prolonged recoveries versus male athletes, um, you know, and, and why that is, I guess, remains a subject of speculation. But, you know, again, maybe there's differences in how males or females cope with different challenges that may influence um, the prolonged recoveries in, in, in what way? Sorry, prolonged recoveries in what way? Prolonged time off the mat or? Yeah, that, that uh, longer females, time back in the sport. Right. Uh, in one study, they showed that females had longer recoveries. It took them longer to get back than, okay. than males. And, you know, again, that is that a, it's hard to know exactly what that's a function of, right? Like um, it, it could be related to a variety of things. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's, I guess, research talking about differences in um, coping behaviors between males and females, or, you know, if, um, yeah, it, it, some of these findings, you know, are sort of why these relationships exist uh, are sometimes things that researchers have to try and tease apart or, or speculate on, but then also investigate further, right? Like just because there's a relationship between say gender and recovery time, depending on how that study is designed, you know, the researchers can't necessarily based on certain kinds of designs determine definitively, like what is it about one's gender that uh, influences recovery time? Maybe there's physical things or hormonal things or you know, um, but anyway, uh, I think the kind of the main point is, is there's certainly factors related to one's demographic characteristics, one's environment and factors within the individual. And, you know, I, I guess in terms of coping, the issue is, is, well, what of all these factors that I've been talking about, what are amenable to influence, right? Like, I might not necessarily be able to pay, you know, for a membership at, at a gym that has the latest and greatest rehab equipment, uh, but there probably are other things. Maybe, uh, you know, nowadays there's a lot of, there is a lot of good information from credible sources on the internet. So maybe it's a matter of sourcing that information so that I have access to, you know, like a qualified rehabilitation specialist who's putting out content on the internet, for instance, uh, so that I have a program to follow. So I think, you know, certainly there are a number of factors that the individual that relate to the individual that they can influence in some way, shape or form. Who's, I find that really interesting, like whose role is it to coordinate all of, all of that? Because yeah. I certainly know from my experience when I have been injured, um, I think I've been lucky enough to have some of those things in place. And then I think secondly, I've been lucky enough to be part of an environment or part of a social system that has been able to put some of those things in place. Yeah. Um, but I think if I'd have been outside of that, I think I would have probably fallen for all of the... Uh, you know the 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 things you mentioned earlier in terms of like trying to come back too soon um maybe or, or, or certainly not having access to like uh, people who could help me manage my injury or um like a physical health team or any, any any of those things so who is it should that be down to the athlete should that be something the coaches are aware of like is it something you should be preparing for before you get injured yeah, I guess. I don't know if that's yeah. the right question. Well, yeah. And, and I think you, you touch on a really important point, James. And, and I guess the short answer is it probably depends, again, on one's circumstance or the context, right? Like, you know, you're an Olympic competitor and operating within a sports system. And, and you know, for elite performers such as yourself, uh, when they're within a 
you know, a competitive sport environment, then there may be access to things like physiotherapists, or, you know, there may be a whole network of sport medicine providers and like a network or, you know, people that refer or that are employed within that sport system. Uh, and, and so to your question, who, who coordinates that? I, I guess that can really depend on the circumstance. And, and that's also, you know, a question that's subject to debate or um, is an open question. I, I think, you know, typically the rehabilitation is traditionally focused on the physical aspects. And so you have a sport medicine physician who may, or a, you know, a team doctor who may be responsible for the diagnosis. And then that individual then sends the, the, the injured athlete to a physical therapist or in the United States, the designation that's um, the um, term that's used as an athletic trainer. So someone who is trained to deal with the rehabilitation specifically of, of injured performers uh, or sport performers. Um, and, and so the focus typically is on the physical and, and, you know, the rehabilitation is often sort of initiated or the sort of starting point is, is from the uh, sport medicine provider, um, you know, again, the initial diagnosis and then sort of referring them or the athlete then works with, you know, who's ever in charge of the physical end of rehab. And, um, you know, if, if you're in a collegiate setting or in a professional setting, then you also probably have access to things like strength and conditioning coaches. And, you know, and professional teams, they have, you know, people whose title is a rehabilitation coach who may have a physiological background or um, at our university, we have sports psychologists, we have uh, strength and conditioning coaches, we have nutritionists. But if you're at a lower level or you're, uh, you know, a high school athlete, you may not be part of, um, you know, an elite sport system. And so you may have to kind of initiate some of these things or take some of these roles on yourself and just finding out, well, what are some things that, you know, who are the people that I need to get around me to create that team? And I think that's a great point. Um, that you raise because, um, you know, if, if you're a parent of a young athlete, you might not sort of know, okay, well, who do I need to get on board? And, and so, you know, that's where people like coaches or, you know, having at least maybe one individual that the athlete is working with who can then say, okay, well, let's, try and maybe bring in some other people or for the athlete to think, well, you know what, maybe I should seek out the help of a sports psychologist and not just because I'm struggling, but I really want to make sure that I maintain motivation or that I address self-confidence. So it, that's a long answer, but I guess it really depends on the circumstance of the athlete. And, and there's no right answer as to who should necessarily lead the rehabilitation program, but I think a take-home point is to whatever extent you can incorporate the expertise of different individuals, in all likelihood, you're going to address different components or facets of the sort of overall, um, you know, the wheel, so to speak, right? Or if you think of rehabilitation mm -hmm. as a pie and you want to address all, you know, parts of it, then, you um, yeah, it's helpful typically if you can get expertise in terms of the physical, the nutritional, the psychological um, areas. Um, so sometimes athletes may have to kind of take that upon themselves if, if need be. So kind of like while, while we're there, um, there's, yeah, like there's so much information that's accessible online now. And some of it is great there was a huge amount of terrible terrible advice and bad information out there yeah. um like what what would your kind of recommendations would be to athletes or parents of young athletes 
be in the first instance of where to get or where to go for support or, or right, what resources right. are out there? Yeah, so that's a really important question. And, and depending on the country you're in, like in, in the UK, for instance, there are um, recognized bodies that govern different areas. So for instance, and, and you would know more than I, but uh, in, in the UK, uh, BASES, um, I believe that's the acronym for, um, I, I believe there's two main bodies that oversee the psychological training of individuals who work with, yeah. with uh, yeah. athletes, right? And so in the UK, it would be important for individuals to, for athletes or coaches or parents to seek out information to go to one of those websites. Now, maybe you can remind me, James, what are the, it's uh, bases, isn't that one of them? And yeah, so, so in the UK, it'd be basis and the, or, or the BPS. Okay. Um, so the British Association of Sport and something, 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 AS, yeah. Sport and AS. Okay. Uh, but the BPS is the British Psychological Society. I sus suspect that bases would have a register as well for maybe uh, nutrition or sports specialists in yeah. like rehab and, and right. areas like that. Right. So, yeah, I think that's that's, you know, a good thought, because once you get connected with one credentialed um, expert, then then they also typically have a referral network of individuals that they can then refer you to. So, you know, I guess the starting point is to really identify, well, what what's the kind of key area where someone wants to really optimize what they're doing? And, and maybe the individual feels like, well, yeah, really what I need is some nutrition, nutritional advice, right? And, and so I guess, you know, whatever the country of origin for that individual, I would encourage them to find out what in their country are the um, recognized associations or governing bodies for... Uh, an area that they want to address, be it psychological or, you know, like maybe they think, okay, I really want to speak to a strength and conditioning coach. And so just having a search and, you know, that I think that that's relatively straightforward where you can get on and, and get on the web and find those organizations and associations. And generally they will be able to either on their website, there's often a function where you can locate someone who has expertise. So I'll give you a concrete example. Uh, before we were talking about the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. And in the US, um, that's one of the two organizations, um, professional organizations involved in uh, research and overseeing the um, uh, the development, I guess, of, of um, practitioners and, and, you know, ensuring that they're competent in, in dealing with injured athletes. And so ASP, for instance, has a certified mental performance consultant. On their website, there's a link or a button that you can click on that says find a CMPC, certified mm -hmm. mental performance consultant. And from there, it's self-explanatory. People could find someone. Or again, in the United States, um, the uh, American Psychological Association is the organization responsible for the training and accreditation of psychologists, whether they're clinical or counseling psychologists. Or So um, there's in the area of sports psychology, uh, Division 47. They have many different divisions of the American Psychological Association, but that's the one that uh, individual who wanted information about a uh, where to find a sports psychologist in the U.S. might go. So I'm just really giving those as examples, but of course it's relevant, you know, to the country of origin of, of the athlete and, and would differ depending on where they are. Uh, but it, it's important for sure that, you know, you want to get someone that is not only well credentialed, but I would also encourage athletes to find people that you know, they feel like they have a good rapport or connection with. 
someone who, you know, listens and understands the nature of their concerns and, you know, they feel that they can trust because that, that's an important part, right? They want to feel that they're seeing someone who's competent that understands what they're experiencing and someone who can help them. Fantastic. Um, thank you for that. I just want to say that when we're recording this, it is super late in the UK. So not yeah. only could I not remember the uh, acronym BASES, I also spelled BASES wrong. <laughs> it's uh, BASES, B-A-S-E-S, yeah. um, which is the British Association for Sport and Exercise Sciences. There's, there's no extra A in there. I'm super tired. You're going to have to forgive me. <laughs> well, um, I, I suppose it is one thing, like it is kind of neat I mean I still find it amazing that you know we can just speak to people in real time uh you know I, it wasn't that long ago when the whole idea of just pressing on a button and seeing someone somewhere else in the world and having a nice easy smooth conversation that was the stuff of science fiction so I still think it's amazing that yeah I'm sitting here in Utah it's 517 <laughs> I guess it would be 12, 20 after 12 where you are, James. Is that right? Oh, God, yeah. I've not yeah, looked sorry. at the clock. I just yeah. know I'm tired. <laughs> so yeah. apologies. Oh, my goodness. Um, cool. So, yeah, before we, before we start wrapping up, we've, we've, uh, we've focused largely on overcoming the negatives, the, the downsides, the, the big challenges that are presented by an injury. But yeah. are there can be can being injured like present an opportunity for yeah. athletes yeah for sure yes it can uh and there's growing evidence to suggest that there are benefits to being injured and and sometimes it may take a while to experience those benefits but i think when i was talking about self-confidence earlier i alluded to some of what those benefits might be so for example you know there may be uh there's evidence showing that athletes may derive physical benefits uh and that seems counterintuitive in some ways because you think well injury aren't i actually getting robbed of my physical capabilities well as you're you know when you have say nine months to recover from a shoulder operation or a knee reconstruction, not only does it give you an opportunity to rebuild your knee and to make the muscles around that area stronger, but also to identify different areas of your physical self that need to be strengthened or that are important for your performance. Um, so you may, you know, injury may give the person a chance to work not just on the injured body part, but on different areas of the body that may be important for performance. Uh, it may, uh, there may be uh, technical benefits. Um, I, you know, in some of the research that I did with uh, in Australia, when I was doing my PhD, I recall interviewing uh, a number of rowers, Olympic rowers and and, you know, and rowing puts a tremendous strain on your lower back. And so they said, well, the injury kind of forced them to think about how they were going to adjust their technique so that they weren't putting so much pressure on their lower back because they couldn't train and then subsequently compete. And so it forced them to think about how to self-reflect or didn't force them, but it gave them the chance to self-reflect on how they could modify their technique in order to work around their injury and still compete at a high level or to avoid re-injury. So that could be another benefit is that, you know, when you're thinking about the physical elements or technical elements that you're preparing yourself to avoid future re-injury. There could be psychological benefits. Athletes say, well, I learned how to cope with difficulty. And guess what? Sport brings plenty of difficulty with it, not just injury, but a whole plethora of other difficulties. And, and this was tough, right? Like this wasn't easy to go through, but I feel like I have some tools and skills to manage pain, right? Like when you're training, you know, to go to the Olympics in judo, I imagine James, there were times where you experienced a lot of physical or even psychological pain and injury gives you plenty of opportunities to learn how to deal with pain. So athletes uh, have reported 
that they learn how to manage things like pain better, or, you know, that they have more confidence that, you know, they can overcome difficulties when future ones uh, come their way and inevitably they do. Uh, lastly, there could be social benefits, right? I developed new hobbies or I connected with people that I hadn't, you know, my friends that I don't get to see as much. Um, I became, you know, I guess, I don't, I don't know if this last thought here is so social in nature, but I guess it's interpersonal. Um, I helped relate, their injury helped me to be more empathetic in my interactions with others. I guess that would mm -hmm. be social, right? Like I used to be really judgmental of other athletes and think, oh, well, you know, they're being a wimp. I used to think that myself until I couldn't <laughs> avoid getting hurt, right? But then, then you get hurt and you realize, okay, well, maybe, you know, I should think about how I interact with people or even just simple things. Like, you know, I realized the importance that if I'm going to be grumpy and in a bad mood all the time, and it's easy to be when you're injured, my physio is probably not going to want to spend time helping me. So I need to think about how I treat people. Maybe it's worth just saying, thanks. I appreciate all the help you've given me or, you know, thanks today. That was really helpful today. Just acknowledging someone's effort in helping you recover. So those things are, you know, definitely social in terms of self-awareness of how you interact with people. So that's the long answer. The short answer again is yes, there could be lots of benefits to getting injured and the athletes who adopt that as an approach and who see that, okay, it's not fun. I don't necessarily wanna be here. I prefer to be training and, and competing, but given that this is the circumstance and that saying it is what it is drives me nuts because people say that all the time. <laughs> but anyway, when you understand or accept to some degree that that is the circumstance for now, but you adopt the mindset, well, how am I gonna use this, this time to, you know, use this to my advantage and and if you adopt that mindset then there's there can be value in the experience and you know as i say there's evidence to support the fact that athletes who do approach their recovery in that way can can come back and um yeah my colleague john heil uses a term remarkable recovery where you're some sort of you know, you're not just coming back at the same level, but even perhaps better in some way, shape or form. Um, and, and that that could be somewhat more commonplace if athletes, you know, were to maybe think of what they're doing in terms of, well, this is my competition. And so how am I, mm -hmm. like I would any other time, how am I gonna address this competition by thinking about ways in which I can improve physically psychologically socially technically awesome what what i'm taking from that is when i uh tore my acl in in 2014 and uh, i'm still on that recovery return to play trail is that i am going to be so strong and everybody better watch out despite yeah. the yeah. fact that i'll be nearly 40 years old <laughs> <laughs> better watch out guys if you're listening <laughs> you know if in our discussion, or as I've been uh, prattling on here, James has provided some motivation to get back in there. <laughs> you know, that's great. Uh, you know, in some ways, I do think we live in an ageist society where we tend to put boundaries on people based on their age. I guess, on the other hand, of course, there are certain physical realities, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, like, but uh, yeah. Um, no, it's great. I always appreciate having the chance to, uh, yeah, talk about some of it's, these ideas. It's been superb having you on. Sure. Now, I've got last couple of brief questions that I sure. know yeah. the uh, two regular listeners to the show will absolutely <laughs> already be, th be thinking of. Is um, what, what weight category did you wrestle at? So... I, I, we had, I guess, different weight classes kind of internationally and then collegiately, I guess. Um, and 
so, so within Canada or uh, on an international level, and I only really probably had a few sort of international competitions, but uh, that was 76 kilograms or 167 pounds. Uh, but then in collegiate uh, wrestling, I think the weight class was 182 pounds, something like that. Okay. Um, so yeah, a little bit heavier um, with the sort of college wrestling, but yeah, um, it was funny because just the other day, I, I haven't weighed myself in a long time. And I said to my wife, I was like, oh, I'm 188 pounds. I'm only probably about four or five pounds this... heavier than when I stopped wrestling. So I, I you know, that was- This was going to be my follow-on. This was going to be my follow-on. You beat me to it. <laughs> Push comes to shove. Could you still make it now? But the, the guys at home, we're, we're chatting over Zoom. So this is only going to go out on audio, but Les still looks in phenomenal shape. Could you still make it now? Push came to shove. No. They I, came recording. University of Utah was saying, we need you. We need well, you on the mat. Yeah, no, the, the answer is a definitive no. And and on that note, <laughs> I guess it's, you know, um, you had asked me at the beginning, like kind of things that I had learned or, or things I would do differently. And, and I guess we often hear a lot of narratives and stories in our culture, in sport in general, about, you know, of course, pushing through pain and not setting limits and, you know, like reaching for the stars kind of thing, right? And, and there's, there's certainly value in, in that approach, but it also has its limitations or downsides, right? And, you know, on the one hand, of course, like if, 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 uh, if athletes were to always try and set limits on what they could do, then they probably wouldn't achieve many of the difficult things they do. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes that mindset or that ethos of, you know, like there's a lot of sayings, a lot of cliches in sport about like, oh, pain is weakness leaving the body or, you know, like whatever the cliches or sayings might be. And, and sport is rife with them. And, you know, athletes, I certainly I did uh, often internalize and, and kind of bring these beliefs on board. And, you know, sometimes now, like I used to run regularly, but I'm 45 now. And, and sometimes when I'm just like, <laughs> hiking and sort of not thinking, oh, it'd be nice to run, but I don't because, you know, it hurts my knees too much or doesn't, if I feel like an uh, awkward elephant as I'm running, yeah. you know, I think, well, you know, maybe should I have stopped sooner or, you know, like in six years, I guess at university or seven, whatever it was, I did a lot of damage in a short period of time. And and it affect, it's affected me. I mean, I still am active. I love to hike and try and cycle. But, you know, sometimes I think, well, maybe there's something to just think about that point I made about listening to your body. And, and you know, I guess by the time I had my last knee reconstruction, I remember the surgeon said to me, well, I don't tell people to retire, <laughs> but, you know, you might want to consider something more cerebral like beekeeping or basket weaving. And uh, so, you know, I knew it was like, okay, I, my body's just not handling this, right? Um, but may, maybe I should have had that realization in it sooner or, or I did, but I just didn't want to accept it until it was sort of just forced upon me. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. So the short answer is no, uh, you know. <laughs> even when I wrestle with my eight-year-old for fun on the trampoline, like he's taking me down on, on the soft bouncy mat. And I think, Ooh, that, that's not fair. So I, I think my joints would quickly give out. My shoulder would dislocate, but um, who knows, maybe in another are the, lifetime. Are the, are the boots still in the wardrobe or are they, are no, they, are they long gone? No, they're, they're long gone. So, no worries. Yeah. And then the, the last one is, again, I'm sure astute listeners will have noticed that you said your brother got into wrestling first. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my brother also did judo and now does MMA. And yeah. um, despite the fact we're, well, I'm late 30s, he's early 30s. We still, when we get together, have a, a house championship. <laughs> what we want to know is, 
maybe not now, but when you were a lot younger, who was the house champion in your oh, yeah. household, you or yeah. your brother? Well, definitely early on, it was my, my brother. Uh, he would, you know, beat me regularly. And then I think like, <laughs> uh, but he, he was smaller and, and he, uh, yeah, I, I kind of started to gain in, in physical stature and, and, you know, at a certain point could probably just use my weight against him more than anything skill related. But, uh, you know, we still, even after I stopped wrestling, we were roommates and living together. And as brothers do, certainly ones who both wrestled, we would have moments of tension and, and, and sometimes <laughs> we would give each other an elbow in the middle of the hallway. And I'll, I'll share this fun, quick anecdote with you. That I'm on there. So when we were living in Vancouver at the time, my brother and I were roommates and we were driving back and, you know, I think we were, getting on each other for silly little things and having you know little squabbles about unimportant things uh and uh our friend on our team said he would drive back to calgary with us from vancouver which was a 12-hour drive on one condition that that we were on our best behavior for the 12 <laughs> hours so i think we lasted about a good you know 11 hours or something and, and then but by the end it, it was yeah it was going downhill quick and then uh so we got home to my parents house really late and and uh you know the next morning we kind of we woke up and as I passed my brother I gave him a shove in the hallway and then we just immediately started wrestling in the hallway and then sort of <laughs> this carried on from the upstairs to the downstairs and at one point I gave it my my dad I believe he had got this new window pane, this new glass pane oh, installed in the front, like right beside the front door, just a day or two before we arrived. And as I was wrestling with my brother, I gave him a quick hard shove into the glass and the whole thing just completely shattered. Oh, and no. my, my mom kind of ran in, like it, my brother and I just stopped all of a sudden. My mom kind of ran in and, and then she yelled at my dad that he shouldn't have bought such a cheap piece of junk. <laughs> and, and so we just kind of stopped. And, and I said, yeah, dad, this, you know, had you not, had you bought in something better quality, this might not have happened. So <laughs> it's a good thing my dad had a lot of patience because uh, my brother and I tested it over the years. So, yeah, anyway. Um, I. I love though that your first reaction was to stop because you knew you were at some point in trouble and then you spied a way out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think um, these these days my brother would probably win, even though he's he's significantly smaller. So I was bad. hoping to hoping to stoke that rivalry again. But if you're <laughs> if you're already giving him the, the, the title, then uh, no, no worries. Yeah. Les, it's been absolutely superb. If um if people I don't know if you, you're on social media, if people want to find you or follow you, are you on social media? Do you want to share a um, yeah hand? sure? So I have a podcast as well that I recently started called Metal Minds. Uh, if you YouTube metal M E T T L E minds, uh, or if um, anyone wants some uh, injury or performance uh, consulting, I have a uh, consulting that I do at podlog, P O D L O G consulting.com. Um, people can find me there, or I guess my academic credentials are um, just listed at the University of Utah. Uh, where people can see some of the research that I've done and the studies that I've done in the area. So Amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, listen, mate, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's much appreciated. I've found yeah. it absolutely fascinating listening to you and, and really enjoyed every minute. Yeah. Thanks and, for um, having me, James. Absolute pleasure. Um, all the best. You take care. Likewise. You take care as well.